Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of Sparm Chatter Live. I haven't done one of these in a bit of a while, about uh, I don't know, five, six weeks. Um, we joined tonight by Professor Michael Gottlieb of NYU. We'll be discussing Haskala, Beer, Moses Mendelssohn, uh, Shasha Fall Hirsch, uh, German Jewry, and, and the like. Get him on. Okay, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, thank you for uh, joining us tonight. Um, can you start with giving us a bit of a background on yourself? A bit of a small biography, I guess. Okay, sure. Uh, I'll give you a brief one. Um, from Montreal, um, and I grew up in a uh, Shomer Shabbat conservative Jewish home. Uh, after high school, I spent time in Haredi yeshivas in Israel, in uh, Ofakim and in Medrash Shmuel. Um, then I studied philosophy at McGill as an undergraduate. Uh, after that, I did a master's degree on Kabbalah and Hasidut with, at NYU. And then a PhD in philosophy at Indiana, where I studied with Frederick Beiser, who's a leading scholar of German philosophy. And my dissertation was on Moses Mendelssohn's writings on Spinoza. Then I taught at Brown for four years before I came to NYU, where I've been teaching since 2006. And this fall, I'll be starting as the Director of Graduate Studies at the Skirball Department of Hebrew and Judaic Studies. Wow. So you, you so I'm curious how you went from Kabbalah and Hasidus to you know, Mendelssohn and Haskalah. Well, that's a good question. Um, and I've kind of been thinking about that. And I think that part of it has to do with the intellectual climate uh, in the 90s when I started doing this work. Um, and in the, in the 1990s, the Enlightenment was not very fashionable in, the academic, in academic circles. And people commonly thought that it was irrelevant or evil uh, and that it was so superseded by what was then called postmodernism. And the idea was that while the Enlightenment stressed reason and a universal standard of truth and morality, postmodernists said there was no such standard, that truth and morality was multiple, that truth and morality was relative to particular societies. The most you could say that is it was that in a particular society, something was moral or immoral, not that there was a universal standard of morality. Um, and on this perspective, the Enlightenment conception of universal truth and morality was seen to be just a play of power that white Europeans used to impose their values on others and to justify colonial oppression. And at the time, I thought that while there was some validity to these criticisms of enlightenment, there was something that had been lost in saying that there was no such thing as universal truths and standards that can bind us as human beings. And just as there was criticism of the Enlightenment, so there was the criticism of the Jewish equivalent, which was the Haskalah, Jewish Enlightenment, and of Moses Mendelssohn. And at this time, Moses Mendelssohn was not very popular among historians of Judaism and Jewish thought, just as the Haskalah was not very popular. And the Haskalah, which was the forerunner of Jewish denominations, reform, conservative, 
modern orthodoxy was criticized often as seeking to colonialize Jewish tradition by imposing foreign Western European values on Judaism. Um, and it was also criticized as presenting a very dry, empty Judaism that was more concerned about social acceptance than connection to God, which denied Jewish nationhood. Um, so among young Jews, you know, especially intellectually oriented uh, young Jews, there was often a lot of interest in Kabbalah and, and Hasidut. And there was a lot of young Jews, there were times where had been becoming Bali Tshuva, were attracted to neo-Hasidism, which really emphasized personal mystical experience and ritual over rationality and ethics. And I appreciated these criticisms, but I also, again, worried that something was being lost in this assessment of Judaism, in emphasizing what distinguishes Judaism, what makes Judaism different over its universal mission and its teachings, in denying the importance of reason and rationalism in Judaism, and assuming that reason and emotion were somehow were at odds with each other. So I think those were the elements that led me more towards an interest in Mendelssohn. So I was going to say, you got interested in enlightenment, you know, a scholar enlightenment period, but how, how particularly, why did you choose to focus on Mendelssohn in particular? Because he's like considered the, the, the father of it, so to speak? Whether that's... Yeah, well, I mean, the Mendelssohn was the most important figure um, for the Maskelyne, even though it's historians have shown that it's wrong to say he founded the Haskalah because he was not an activist that way. It was really, the person who's really the founder was uh, Itzik Oichel, but he was the most important figure for, for the Maskelyne. And I found him to be a really fascinating figure because he was a very unique person that I don't know if we've ever seen anyone like him since, uh, since that time. He was on the one hand, a world-renowned philosopher, literary critic, um, political thinker who was celebrated in intellectual scholarly circles um, among politicians um, and political figures. But he was someone who was raised with no secular education, just learning Gemara, Yiddish, uh, studying, uh, knowing Yiddish and, you know, reading Gemara. Um, and he developed a good knowledge of Gemara. And Solomon Maimon said he was a good Talmudist, right? He was, he, he had proficiency in that. And he was in correspondence with leading rabbis like Rabbi Yaakov Emden, Rabbi Jonas Naibshitz. Um, so he was this person who really stood in both worlds, and I think that was made him a kind of very unique figure. I want to ask you, I think he was a Talmud of the Pneumosha, right? The, the author of the Pneumosha in Yerushalmi? He was, no, uh, you're very close. He was a Talmud of David Frankel, uh, the Korban Ha'eda. Ah, okay. That's... He was the one who, he, uh, he followed him. He was his rabbi in Dessa, which is a small hamlet. He was the son of a poor Sofer Stam. Um, and again, he was raised very in, in a very poor, poor environment. And uh, he followed Rabbi Frankel to uh, Berlin when he became the chief rabbi and established yeshiva. And while he was, he studied under him for many years, uh, but at the same time, uh, he also taught himself languages, German, French, English, Greek, Latin, philosophy. He never attended a university or a secular school. So. Right. Does he show familiarity with Yerushalmi? I'm curious, because being that his Rebbe was such a big uh, into Yerushalmi. Yeah, I mean, he does quote the Yerushalmi, uh, especially um, in this dispute over early, early burial. He, 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 he quotes precedents from the Yerushalmi. Um, but yeah, but it's, uh, it's an interesting question. I haven't investigated that. 
Okay, just just something to to think of. Okay, so I guess what he's known today, besides for being people like you said, people ascribed to him being in charge of the. Uh, um, we'll get to that once the orthodoxy, but he's known for the beer, which today is not around. I'll get to that why it's not. But what was what was so novel at the time? The idea that he came out with 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 the beer. What was it a novel approach that he decided conceived of this idea? Okay, so the beer, yeah, and the beer is a kind of really a fascinating work that's, you know, not very widely studied outside of academic circles um, today. And the beer is this interesting hybrid because when you open the beer in its original edition, you have to understand there's 30, at least 30 different editions, not reprints of the beer through the end of the 19th century. When you look at the original edition that Mendelssohn produced, it looks and opens and looks like a microcodolo, right? You have the text of the, of, the, of the Humash in Hebrew facing a translation in Hebrew characters, and then you have a Hebrew commentary below. Um, and the difference is that the translation, instead of being in Aramaic like Onkelos, is in German, in High German. It's the first Jewish uh, translation of the Bible into High German. And in the commentary, it's really you know, very continuous with what the medieval Pashtanim are doing. And he's, he has four favorite commentators, which are Rashi, Rashbam, Ibn Ezra, and Ramban. Um, and he'll quote them, sometimes with even, without even saying that he's quoting them, if he agrees with them, or he'll disagree with them, or he'll pit them against one another. Um, but this commentary um, replaces Rashi. So there's no Rashi in the original uh, beer. Uh, so what, what makes the beer not, so it looks very traditional, although you could say it also looks revolutionary because there's no Rashi and there's no Onkelos. So it's a kind of mixture. But what really make it novel um, is, I would say, a couple of things. The first thing is that it's, in, it's connected to, and we'll say more about this maybe later, um, that Mendelssohn's seeking to change the Jewish curriculum. Right? Um, at the time, and the education he received was Mendelssohn received was based on studying the Gemara from a very young age, right? And he says that, yes, there would be a little Humash study with Rashi, but, uh, he, you know, they said that the, the teachers would then want to tell the parents, they're often private teachers, they would want to tell the parents, oh, your child is brilliant. They can already go to the Gemara when they're six, when they're seven, right? So, um, and that was where the prestige was, which was studying Gemara. Uh, it was girls who studied Humash, usually through the Tzanarana, which mixed Midrash and stories. And what Mendelssohn made clear was he wanted the Bayor to be the center of the Jewish curriculum for boys. Um, and that he focused on studying the text according to its pshat. Uh, so that was the first, the first element that was, that, was, that, was, that was, I think, novel and, and, and important there. Uh, and the second element, I'd say, is you, is you, you have to um, if you read the commentary closely, you'll see, and even the translation, you'll see that uh, there's a masculine conception of Judaism uh, in this. And I could give you different examples of this. Um, you know, for example, one element that's, for instance, uh, very prominent of it is the importance of art and aesthetics as a theme in the Biyor. So Mendelssohn devotes a lot of attention to discussing the unique qualities of biblical poetry. And he stresses the fact that originally in Judaism, poetry and music was very important. Um, so this is a way of trying to say that Jews should recover an interest in aesthetics and an interest in art. That this isn't a, some foreign idea, but this was native to Judaism. 
the beer also has a lot of uh, emphasis on grammatical analysis of the Hebrew. And it emphasizes the fact that you need to know Hebrew grammar to understand the Chumash. There's other elements and examples I can give. But... Right. Now, just I guess we should step back for a second and give a history. Who exactly wrote the beer? He didn't really write the actual beer, right? Most of it. Right. So the beer, again, we say there, there's this mixture of these two main elements, which is the translation um, and then also the uh, commentary. There's also Masoretic notes where he tries to um, assess which is the most accurate Masora and goes through different questions uh, related to that. That Mendelssohn didn't do. That was uh, someone named Solomon Dubno who did that. The translation was completely by Mendelssohn. In terms of the commentary, and Mendelssohn says that the purpose of the commentary is to explain the translation choices. That's the primary, um, the primary reason for it. Uh, he, Mendelssohn himself wrote the first part of Breshit, and he wrote the commentary on all of Shemot. Um, for the rest of Breshit, it was Dubno again, Shlomo Dubno who did that. Uh, Naftali Hertz-Vesli wrote the commentary on Vayikra. Uh, Aaron Yaroslav, who's a basically unknown scholar, wrote the commentary on Bamidbar. Uh, and Mendelssohn, together with Hertz Homburg, wrote Devarim. Really, Mendelssohn, uh, Hertz Homburg started it, he would, that Mendelssohn was going to give him to, to write big, large portions of it, but he wasn't happy with it, so he revised it. So it was basically a joint project. Um, but in the other places that he didn't compose himself, in the rest of Breshid, aside from the first parsha, Vaikra and Bamidbar, Mendelssohn will include comments in brackets when he wishes to add to or disagree with the with what the Beurist wrote. So, um, so you get his input even in the other books if you look carefully. Interesting, right? And, and like you said, the translation part was in German, but the actual commentary was in Hebrew, regular Hebrew. Right. The right, actual commentary is in Hebrew, and Mendelssohn wrote in Hebrew. He he was one of the first people, well before you know, the Zionists or any idea of the revival of modern Hebrew, Mendelssohn was already calling for a revival of, of Hebrew as a living language in the 1750s. Uh, and he had a great love for the Hebrew language and he wrote a beautiful Hebrew. Right. Now, just to point out, like you mentioned, Dubno there, he left at some point. There was, a, there was like a disagreement there? Well, this is right. There's a, this is, you know, Alexander Altman has, has investigated this. He's a kind of leading scholar of Mendelssohn. And Dubno later claimed that he had, he had left because um, he thought Mendelssohn wasn't traditional enough. But uh, when you actually look at the letters that were exchanged, the reason why he seems to have left was because he wrote a long introduction that he wanted to be used as the introduction to the Bior. But the introduction itself was very, very technical focused on these questions of Masora and stuff and Mendelssohn didn't want to use it. He said maybe he'd use part of it um, and Dubno was very insulted. And because he put so much time into it and then Mendelssohn didn't want to use it, he left the project. And then Mendelssohn composed his own introduction called Orlin Tiva, which is a masterpiece. Um, and that was what was used in Hebrew. Right. Now, one more question about the other authors before I get back to him. But Yikra, as you mentioned, was Naftali Hertz Wiesel, Hartwig Wesley, whatever you want to call him. It seems that 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 one was a lot more used, as we'll get to later, but Hirsch quotes it plenty of times, Kabbalah quotes it. I mean, it, it seems to, it, was that more accepted, that, that his, his commentary versus the others? Yeah. So, so the, the, the fascin it's a fascinating question of the reception of Vesely versus Mendelssohn. 
Because right. in his lifetime, Vesely was much, much more controversial than Mendelssohn. Right. Because right? in 1782, Vesely published this manifesto, Divrei Shalom Vehemet, and he called for overhauling the Ashkenazic educational system and to make secular education, what he called Torah Adam, the foundation of, edu- of, of, of Jewish education and um, the Bible and then and rabbinic texts later on, which he called Torah Tashem, would be kind of overlaid on top of that. Uh, and Veslik said, called for putting the Bible at the center and relegating Gemara for, the stat, for, for, for more advanced students. He famously said, you know, we're not all called to be Talmud scholars, right? That should just be for more advanced students who can understand it. Um, and then what was really, what, the, what a lot of the rabbinic establishment really, really didn't like was that when Vesley had cited the importance of secular education and manners and you know cultivation of these of these elements as part of a, a Jewish education, uh, he used the phrase "kol tovah and so the rabbis didn't like that <laughs> too much. Um, and so what happened was that after this came out, there was a huge controversy controversy about it. The Nodi Behuda um, and many others launched this harsh attack on Vesely. Uh, Mendelssohn came to Vesely's defense, but it was centered on Vesely. And there were four different pamphlets Vesely wrote trying to defend himself. And the Italian rabbis were called in, Vesely called in, because he thought they would have an affinity for him. And at the beginning, they defended him and then kind of changed. So it was a big controversy. And Mendelssohn never stirred such controversy. There was some, you know, people said some negative things about the beggar, but there was never this open controversy in the same way. Um, but what happens is that in the 19th century, you have a big change. And what happens, especially in German orthodoxy and in neo-orthodoxy, secular education comes to be accepted, that this is going to be an important part of the curriculum. And the Bible also comes to be understood to have a centrality in the curriculum. And that comes to, that, and, and that comes to be um, accepted among at least rabbis with neo-orthodox leanings. And so when that happens, um, you find increasing acceptance of Vesely. Uh, and in 1842, the Arach Lener published a new Haskama on a new edition of Vesely, had also written the commentary on Bereshit. And the Arach Lener wrote that Vesely was, he called him, quote, the well-known poet, scholar, and advocate who is famous and praised among all camps of Israel, <laughs> which was, <laughs> uh, you know, a kind of, kind of striking statement. And as you mentioned, Hirsch felt special affinity with Vesely. He owned un- unpublished manuscripts by Vesely. He quotes them often. I investigated uh, Hirsch's Pentateuch. And uh, when you look at the modern um, commentators who he cites, Vesely is by far the person he cites the most. And he never disagrees with Vesely, as far as I could see. Uh, he gives them the acronym Nun Ain, Nishmato Eden. So uh, he was he 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 felt he he also quote Vesely is also the first person he quotes in his commentary on Pirkei Avot. So uh, there's this, there is this kind of great affinity, um, and I think there's an important connections between Hirsch's notion of Torah and Derech Eretz and Vesely's account of the of combining Torah to Adam and Torah to Shem. More to be said that, but why then? The obvious question is why was Mendelssohn come to be vilified and Vesely not? Uh, and I think the short answer is that the reason is because Mendelssohn came to be held up as a hero for reformers uh, and for masculine. 
and Vesley was barely mentioned. Manson had a much higher profile. He was much more, uh, you know, respected in European circles. Vesley really only wrote for Jewish circles. He had no philosophical training. Uh, so Mendelssohn comes to be held up by Maskelium and reformers almost as their gadol. Well, if he's their gadol, then for Haredim, he must be an anti-gadol, a kind of <laughs> satanic figure uh, who was the source of everything who went wrong. So I think that's kind of a short story of sense of what happens. Right, very interesting. And as I mentioned also, I know Haksav Kabbalah quotes him as Ranu, uh, Tali Wiesel quotes him also many times. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, as I guess we should get back to the actual beer, though. So, what was the, so like you said, the immediate reception history of the beer, even by the right then, there wasn't really reform, conservative, ultra orthodox, matter there wasn't anything. But, but at that point, what was the kind of reception history immediately, and the, the following years after it was published? So, if you begin in Germany or in German, there's no Germany till you know later in the 19th century. But in the German lands in Prussia. Um, it's a very complicated story. I'll give you a couple of details about it uh, in terms of how it was received. Um, you know, so first the beer was used in the first Maskilic school, uh, what's been called the first modern Jewish school, the Freischule, the Philjudische Kinder, which Mendelssohn didn't establish, but he supported. Um, now, the Node of Yehuda, I've mentioned, and Rabbi Raphael Cohen of Hamburg, and other rabbinic figures opposed the Biur. But their opposition tended to center on the translation, not on the commentary. And the Nodi Bihuda famously said that he was concerned that the, the fact that translation was written in Hebrew characters, but in high German um, and in an elegant language, uh, he worried that its real goal was to teach Jews how to be good Germans by teaching them the German language. So this was his famous criticism of it. And he, he wasn't against translation, even translation to German in, in, in principle. And he supported another translation by um, Su, uh, Sussman, uh, which was a word-for-word translation, because it didn't really teach you German. You know? um, so this was the concern. But what happens is then there's a change. And the change happens in the 19th century because it becomes commonplace for German Jews to speak and read German, especially after there was a law passed in Prussia in 1815, which made knowing German compulsory for Jews. And at this point, actually Mendelssohn's Beor and the translation especially comes to seem very old fashioned because it's written in German in Hebrew characters. And that actually becomes a marker of Jewish traditionalists like Rav Seligman Bamberger. Um, and the commentary uh, is this learned Hebrew commentary that engages with medieval Pashtanim. And so this actually, so the Bior we actually find in traditional haters, even uh, in, the, in the 19th century, that the beer is sometimes used. So there's, again, this kind of shift in the reception. Right. Sorry. So interestingly, so what was the reception of it later on? So suddenly, like, it... it got worse so that it seems to be what you mentioned before which was kind of that Mendelssohn became the reform's guttle so to speak and that's when it became such a bad thing when did that happen well I mean that's that you know that, that, that that's a good question it's happening through the 19th century um, but again Mendelssohn from a neo-orthodox perspective you have some criticisms by someone like Hirsch of Mendelssohn but in general, Mendelssohn is, is a kind of respected figure in neo-Orthodoxy. 
Um, it's especially when to move farther east that you have um, a much more negative view of Mendelssohn in the 19th century. And again, this is extremely complicated, but I'll give one example of this, and it connects specifically to the Bayer. And that is that in 1852, um, we have an edition of the Bayer by the Russian Maske Leo Mandelstam. And Mandelstam got governmental support to create this new edition of the Bayer and to implement it in schools as a way of spreading Maskelic ideas. Uh, now, Mandelstam's edition actually looks more traditional than Mendelssohn's because he reinserted Rashi and Onkelos because he didn't want it to seem so threatening to Jewish traditionalists. But what Mandelstam, Mandelstam did was he used a very heavy hand and he threatened action against traditionalist rabbis if they didn't use the Beor or if they didn't endorse, I should say, the new edition of the Beor. Um, and so what he has in his edition is 12 rabbis who support this new edition, including the Lubavitcher Rebbe. But this was done not because Lubavitcher Rebbe at the time really liked the Beor, but because he was forced to. So Beor became emblematic of muscular overreach, of the use of Christian authorities to implement and to um, uh, changes in Jewish education. So it naturally aroused a lot of opposition. Right. So is there any, any, in any of the beers, anybody ever, has there been any, obviously no, but I'm just going to ask if people listening, has there any been any apicarsis, so to speak, or is it just, or, as a follow-up to that, even if no, but you're saying there clearly is masculine undertones, masculine, you know, thoughts, ideas yeah. in there. Yeah, I mean, they're clearly masculine. It's, it's clearly kind of, yeah, masculine, a masculine way of conceiving Judaism. Uh, but in terms of actually Epicorsus, I've seen two passages mentioned that you see cited uh, that they that, as, as containing Epicorsus. Um, and that is, um, one is a commentary um, in Devarim. Uh, actually, it's also the a, a, a translation um, of a passage in Devarim. Let's see if I can uh, find the exact passage. Um, So anyways, one is a passage in Javarim, and the other is a passage in, um, in Bamidbar, um, specifically related to Va'ish uh, Moshe Anav Me'od, right? And the Bayer commentary there is sometimes taken to, to imply that this was not, that these passages were not written um, by Moshe. So that was, and that's commonly taken to be evidence that the Bayer has a kind of, um, has apicorsis. Um, but what actually is funny about that is that if you look at the introduction to the Beor, the Orlin Tiva, um, Mendelssohn affirms Moshe wrote everything Alpia Gura, and that even the last eight psukim, which a lot of commentators have said, well, maybe those were by, by, by Yoshua, and that was a very acceptable position. Mendelssohn says, absolutely not. And he says, and the Torah has been perfectly preserved. So, again, I'm not sure that the way those passages, those other passages are read, um, are accurate, but those are two passages I would say that have been um, have been cited as potentially containing apicorsis. Right. Okay. So, just pertaining to him before we finish up on on Mendelssohn, is if if someone wanted to read something of his thought, I know maybe some people listening shouldn't, but if people want to read something, would would you, would, would the Hakdama to Voracious is that what you would suggest them to look at? What would you suggest? You mean of Mendelssohn's writings? Of his own, yeah, of his own writings, not on him. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, the 
the Hakdama to the Orlintiva, which is the Hakdama to the Beur, um, also held the Hakdama to his 1769 Beur on uh, Kohelet. It's fascinating. It's really important. Very interesting. Um, and yeah, also, and also, I would also look at the Hakdama that he wrote to a commentary on uh, the Rambam's um, Milota Higayon. So that's uh, that's also really interesting. So in terms of um, in terms of Mendelssohn's writings, I think those are those are good places. He also also this other this other book he wrote Kohelet Musar, which is in the 1750s. Again, is I think a really interesting interesting work. Those are all in Hebrew. If you want to read stuff in German, then yes. <laughs> right. a lot so some, yeah, someone just asked about Jerusalem. That's like maybe the famous one. Yeah, Jerusalem. But there's other there's other really uh, really interesting texts. So. So, um, and as for just as for about reading about Mendelssohn or reading translations of his stuff into English, what would you suggest? Um, well, the classic trans. First of all, Dave, there's this there's translation with very very good um, annotations and introductions of many of his Hebrew writings that just came out by Eddie Breuer and David Sorkin, um, and that's a really excellent excellent work. Um, in terms of his English translation, the you know classic is uh, Alan Arkish's translation of Jerusalem, and I also did uh, I edited some translations of Mendelssohn's um, various other writings, some Hebrew, some German writings. Um, it was called I think Moses Mendelssohn's Writings on Judaism, Christianity, uh, and the Bible. And one of his I think two fascinating texts that are less well, less well known, but I think are really important is one is his open letter to Lafater, where Lafater had, this uh, Christian had challenged him to convert to, to, to Christianity um, or refute it. And Mendelssohn has this really um, fascinating letter uh, that convinced most of the Christian audience <laughs> that what Lafater had done was uh, inappropriate. And also his introduction to um, Menashe ben Israel's Vindicia Deorum, which Menashe ben Israel had written to, uh, to convince Oliver Cromwell to readmit the Jews to uh, England, uh, and Mendelssohn wrote an introduction to that. That's also really fascinating. And some of those selections are in my in the volume I edited. Right, and that I believe is by uh, Brandeis University Press, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Now, as for a biography on him, you would suggest someone we should read about, about him, Altman's biography still? Well, Altman is the, you know, he, it's, you know, incredible, incredible work, 800, 900 pages. I saw. I said he probably knew more about Mendelssohn than Mendelssohn knew about himself. I mean, he was, you know, pretty pretty amazing. And he also quotes a lot of passages. Um, there's a shorter biography by Shmuel Feiner that's very accessible. Um, there's an introduction by David Sorkin, a, a book about him, which is very good. There's others, but but uh, but to really get into the depth of it, I would I would recommend reading Altman. Right. So two last questions just about him before we move on, which we move on to Hirsch, is that how much of a relationship is there between him and reform? People today seem to think that it's the same thing. Mendelssohn is reform, et cetera. So they, but how much of a relationship really? Uh, but, right. Is there between them? Yeah. So, yeah, it's a very interesting question. Um, there are reasons, substantive reasons, why reformers look to Mendelssohn. You know, first of all, because Mendelssohn emphasized the inadmissibility of religious coercion, right? That the fact that that detracted from the value of a religious act if you were forced to do it. 
So individual judgment and individual, um, you know, uh, kind of liberty of judgment, in, uh, especially in, in, in religion, was very important to him. Uh, so, you know, that's a kind of, that, 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 that's a way in which they look to him. The fact that Mendelssohn advocated, obviously, participating in the wider world um, and saw that as complementary with Judaism and saw as Judaism's mission as connected to uh, broader society um, and to improving the broader society. You know, so there, so there were elements, and you can mention other ones that, that they looked to. Um, on the other hand, there were many elements of, of Mendelssohn that were not acceptable to reformers, specifically his idea that he rejected the idea that the Torah had changed over time. He emphasized the fact that it was God who dictated the Torah to Moses. And he emphasized the fact that all halacha, including all the ceremonies, were absolutely binding. And if you look at a, a historian, a reform historian, perhaps the greatest contemporary historian of reform Judaism, uh, Michael Meyer, uh, who wrote this book, Response to Modernity, which is the history of the reform movement, he says Mendelssohn is a kind of precursor to modern orthodoxy and not to reform. So, again, it depends what elements you take from, from him. Right, and the last thing I want to get to, I see here, David Bashevkin mentioned this a little bit similar, was he wanted to know if he ever discussed his children and grandchildren assimilating. I don't know if he, if he lived and he knew that, but I wanted to ask, though, is like, how much can he be blamed? That's always brought up, as you see, his kids, they, 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 they assimilated and they became Christian, so, you know, he wasn't really religious or whatever. Right. Right. So this is, you know, a very kind of interesting, interesting question that is, you know, much, much discussed. Um, and I guess the question when you think about this is, well, how much do the children's actions reflect the teachings of the parent? How much has to do, does it have to do with broader social factors, social and economic factors? How much does it have to do with, um, yeah, peer pressure? How much does it have to do with psychological factors? Right. So, again, four of six of Mendelssohn's six children convert to Christianity. There's no doubt about that. But again, how do we assess these things? I mean, if you measure a parent by their children or their grandchildren, you find these kind of interesting um, ironies. So, for example, Mendelssohn's two greatest opponents were Rabbi Raphael Cohen and um, the Noda Yehuda. Well, the Noda Yehuda's grandson, Moshe Lando, in 1830, produced a massive new edition of the Biur in 30 volumes. He was a maschil. And Rabbi Raphael Cohen's grandson was Gabriel Reeser, who was on the board of the Hamburg Temple, the Hamburg Reform Temple. So would we say that their teachings, that, that, that their actions reflected something about their grandparents' teachings? I don't know. It's an interesting question. You know, were they, did they feel those teachings were too restrictive? I don't know. Or was it due to other factors? social factors, you know, economic factors. Like, it's very hard to assess these things. Right. <clears throat> okay, so we'll move on to Herschel a little. I know people have a lot of questions here, I see. So um, if you want, you can, at the end, you'll be able to scroll up and see the comments. If people can wait till the end of the comment and to ask questions, and maybe you want to take some questions. But for now, we want to move on to Hirsch, who, uh, Professor Gottlieb, you're working currently on Hirsch. Um, yeah. So let, let's move on. We'll start with something still connected. What is the difference between Hirsch's actual Chumash that he ended up doing and the beer? 
similarities and differences. Yeah, well, that's really interesting. Because if you would open Hirsch's Chumash, Hirsch's Pentateuch, his Chumash, and you compare it to Mendelssohn's, and you say, which is the more traditional one? It would look to be, look to be Mendelssohn, right? Hirsch's has the Hebrew original facing a translation of German in, in Gothic characters, and his commentary below is in German, not in Hebrew, with some smattering of Hebrew words. If you look at the content of it, Mendelssohn, again, looks much closer to the medieval Parshanim, who Hirsch doesn't really engage with that much. Right? Uh, he'll cite Rashi. He's more interested in you know, Midrash, but he, 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 he's not really um, involved in the same kind of conversation that Mendelssohn is that really seems to go very closely with what the medieval Parshanim are doing. So that's in terms of their appearance. I mean, Hirsch is, has a very different agenda than Mendelssohn. And I've, I've talked about this in, in an article, but I mean, Hirsch is trying, he's a kind of orthodox thinker. And as a scholar, we use orthodoxy in a technical term, not to mean, you know, uh, Judaism as it was since time immemorial, but orthodoxy is a specific movement that arose in the 19th century, which is marked by a self-conscious opposition to competing trends and accounts of Judaism. Mendelssohn is not concerned. There's no denominationalism with it. He doesn't feel like he needs to, he needs to defend Judaism from Christians, but he doesn't need to defend his version of Judaism from other Jews. Hirsch is very conscious of that. He won't name his opponents. Even when he cites Geiger, he doesn't say it's Geiger, <laughs> right? But he will try, because he doesn't want to give them credibility. He doesn't want to, you know, raise doubts more or in, 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 in you know, uh, to tempt his followers to read these things. But He's, he's very often polemicizing for his account of what true Judaism is. So it's, it's a kind of, it's, it's different. Also, his whole method is very different. It has this philology. We could say a lot about these things. This, you know, new philology develops. It develops on this new account of the relationship between the oral and written Torah. It's, it's a lot to say about this. Yeah, for sure. So as a general, you kind of touched a little bit. Hirsch is would Hirsch be considered? You consider what? What other time? The famous question is Hirsch a forerunner of modern orthodoxy today, or was he neo orthodoxy? He wasn't. Maybe it was Hildesheimer. Maybe it was Hildesheimer. Maybe not. All that topic. Where do you? What do you have to say on that? So okay, this is a really interesting question. So there's a couple of things. First of all, neo orthodoxy is not monolithic. German neo orthodoxy means different things, right? Because there's different splits in German neo-Orthodoxy. Okay, so for, for so first of all, there's a split between Frankfurt and Berlin. And they mentioned between uh, Hirsch's neo-Orthodoxy in Frankfurt and Hildesheimer's neo-Orthodoxy in Berlin. And this is over the question of whether academic Jewish studies uh, is acceptable, is permissible. Hirsch completely rejects that, right? That's just not uh, that's not acceptable. Hildesheimer says it's okay as long as you exclude biblical criticism. So again, Yeshiva University, Bari Lenders are clearly following Hildesheimer, not Hirsch. The second element is there's a split between separatist orthodoxy in Frankfurt of Hirsch and Rav Selving Bambiger's communal orthodoxy, where Hirsch rejects all participation with non-orthodox, with the non-orthodox Jewish community, while Bamberger advocates that as long as there's some accommodations made for orthodoxy. So here again, Hirsch seems closer to what might be the Haredi perspective than, um, than Bamberger, right? So he wouldn't be a, necessarily a, um, a forerunner. But I think if you look at Hirsch's beliefs, 
Um, many of them do align with what we call modern orthodoxy today. Um, and I'll mention a few, and you could stop me if I'm, <laughs> it's, uh, there, there's too many here, but I'll just say a few. First is the idea of uh, a secular education integrated with Jewish education, right? And Hirsch is saying that we don't just study secular subjects for Parnassa. That's not the only reason. It's not just for economic reasons. You study secular subjects because there's a sense that Judaism has a universal mission and to attain its true fulfillment, you have to understand the world and participate in the world. This is the notion of Torah and Derecheretz. You could say a lot more about this, right? But this is, um, so, so secular education actually has a kind of religious element to for, for, for Hirsch. So, and, and so like Hirsch insisted in his school that all the teachers of secular subjects be Shomer Shabbat Jews, okay? Because he said, he, he, this, this was, this was, there was an important religious dimension here. So that's one element. I think that aligns more closely with modern orthodoxy. The second element is this defense of Jewish civil rights as part of a concern with human rights, right? For her, she sees the Jewish emancipation is very important, not just for what it does for Jews, but because it expresses a modern concern with human equality, human rights. And for him, this is a way of fulfilling the Torah's message of the equality and dignity of humanity, right? So for her, Jews have to support efforts that lead to the promoting of human dignity, right? So there's kind of broader concern and interest uh, in, 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 in human rights, not just with what's good for the Jews. Again, emphasis on Tanakh rather than on the Talmud as the center of Jewish education in Hirsch's school. Again, he is much closer to Vesley and, re and he replaces this idea that Talmud should be the center and the most important thing. And what's very important is that Hirsch, and here's something where maybe he's somewhat breaks from what, what Yeshiva University at least became was that he doesn't value Gemara, an analytic Gemara study as an end in itself. For him, that's pilpul, right? He rejects the idea that Talmud should be studied for its own sake. Torah is always for the sake of being implemented in the world. Um, and so, again, that kind of led him to this, another point, which is his rejection of the authority of Gedolim. And this came up with the uh, debate with Bamberger, where, where Hirsch had ruled that his community has to separate, has to secede from the non-Orthodox community. Some members of his community didn't like that because that meant that they would lose burial rights. Uh, so they appealed to Rav Selim Bamberger, who said, who came in and said, well, you don't actually have to secede. Um, you can if you want to, but there's no halachic mandate. So Hirsch is very upset. He says, you're violating halacha. Halacha says that one rabbi can't permit what another had forbidden. So Rav Selim Baber says, well, that's true, but only in cases where they have equal knowledge. When one's a much greater Talmud Chacham, then it's not true. So Hirsch didn't like that. And Hirsch said, well, what does it mean? Yes, you have more knowledge of Gemara, but it's pilpul. Um, that doesn't give you any great authority to decide these things. What you need is Seichel Yashar, and you have to know the facts of the case. And he, wrote, and he wrote this in an open letter, and he was very, very critical of Rav Selman, and he would not defer to him, even though he acknowledged you have much greater knowledge of Gemara than I do, um, especially of what he would call pilpul. So that's a kind of another, another element. Um, his accepting of Christian ways of dressing, right? He says where it doesn't violate halacha, you can dress like and speak the language of Christians, and chukat hagoi doesn't apply unless it involves a Vodazara. So you can dress like a Protestant minister, which is what he did. Um, you can have a male choir, right? That's all okay. 
So those are kind of elements that maybe align with modern orthodoxy. On the other hand, we said he rejected academic Jewish studies. Um, he was anti-Zionist. And when, you can't say that's an anachronism because uh, Rav Sviher's Kalischer approached him, who's a forerunner of Zionism, to support the movement. He said, absolutely not. This goes against the mission of the Torah, which is to spread Torah's ethical teachings to humanity. And you also have separatism. So where does he fall out? This is a kind of interesting question, but there's a lot of ways he does align with modern orthodoxy, but not all. Right. And it, as you pointed out, I was going to admit, I was going to bring out, it's also interesting how you view him because some view him in some ways as on the uh, left, so to say, as more modern orthodox. And on some things, like the two uh, that you brought up, he's more on the right. He's more almost like Haredi, uh, whatever, whatever words you want to use. You know, so it's, it's very interesting how he's like in both. Yeah, well, he has no one that totally follows his approach these days, right? It's a very unique approach. And for him, it's all principles. That's thing, he wasn't saying, oh, let me give half to this side and half to this side. Everything makes sense in the context of his thought, right? Um, and this was his principled approach. Right. Right. It was definitely uh, interesting. So what? as for the uh, biography of Hirsch, uh, most people probably know. I don't know if you have to, if anyone wants to, you can ask for something. But I figure they probably know a basic biography of him. What, where do you fall? There is an article biography of Hirsch. It's from... I'll say it like this. It's from the best, if not the best, art school biography, but what do you have to say about it? All right. <laughs> um, what do I have to say about it? Um, Klugman's biography. Um, look, he's very knowledgeable. Okay. He's, he, 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 you know, he has quite a good knowledge of, um, of Hirsch and Hirsch's texts. Um, he edited this very good volume, um, Shemesh Marpet. Uh, which includes translations into Hebrew, some Hebrew things that Hirsch wrote. Um, and that's very good. The problem, the issue I have with the biography is it's written from a contemporary Haredi perspective. And so what that means is that facts from Hirsch's life that don't fit into that get ignored or downplayed. So I could give you a couple of examples of this, which is uh, first that Klugman emphasizes that Hirsch, the importance of Hirsch's grandfather, Mendel Frankfurter, uh, on him. Uh, that is clearly true. What he doesn't mention was that Mendel Frankfurter uh, was a conservative masculine who had studied personally with Moses Mendelssohn. Uh, and that Hirsch was from this, uh, from a masculine background. Uh, that's the way he describes it in uh, the 19 letters. Hirsch loved Vesely. He, as I said, he had these manuscripts of Vesely, uh, and he really admired him. His uncle was named Rav Moshe Mendelssohn um, of Hamburg, Hamburger, and he was named him. He named himself after Moses Mendelssohn. So, you know, but these things you won't find in that biography. He doesn't. He, you sometimes get the impression that Hirsch, as a child, studied in a yeshiva or something, and he mentions you know different places he studies, but you have no sense that actually his main education was in a German gymnasium, right? And the, you know, the Jewish education was kind of much more on the side. It was, a, first of all, there was a Moskillic school he, he studied at, and then there was a, even a gymnasium that he studied at. He didn't even go to his grandfather's school who'd set up a Jewish school. And that had to do with issues partly of class, was that that was, you know, seemed to be for poor people and for poor Jews. And, you know, so there's, a, you know, so I think you have to be very careful 
with it because, as, as I said, Hirsch is this very unique figure. And if you try to figure fit him into contemporary Haredi perspective, even if you try to fit him into contemporary modern Orthodox perspective, you're going to distort it. And certainly if you try to fit him into a contemporary Haredi perspective, you're going to distort it. So you have to be very careful with it. I think, I think uh, I'm sure Klugman knows a lot of these things, but he's chosen what he wants to write and how he wants to present it. Right. He does ignore a lot of those things that you mentioned. But like, there are a lot of good facts in there, though, that he does yeah. see no one get right, though. That's what I mean, meaning yeah, compared yeah. to some, I don't know if you read, but art school biographies don't really have a lot of facts or actual information. Yeah, yeah, and he's very knowledgeable. And he was, you know, and he, he was he had access to some good documents. I think uh, Mordechai Breuer gave him access to some good documents. And he's a knowledgeable person. Um Again, I think there are things also in terms of broader, the broader context of Hirsch, you know, the social political context that, you know, I think there's more to say about it. Um, but again, he's writing a biography of a gadol, so that's going to <laughs> shape the way <laughs> you present it. And certain things are just not important from that perspective. Exactly. So is that something you're going to be working on, a new biography of Hirsch? Yeah, that's what I'm planning to. I'm planning to write... Um, I'm, I've, I've, I have a book now coming out on, on German-Jewish Bible translations, which is going to be about Mendelssohn, Leopold Soons, and half the book is on Hirsch. And I, I discuss his, uh, the, both the Chumash, the Pentateuch, and the Psalms that he wrote. Those are the two main works. Like Mendelssohn, those are the two main uh, translations he did. Um, there's over 250 pages of them. But then I'm going to do also a new biography uh, of Hirsch that I'm planning. Wow, so when, but is the book on Bible translation going to be out sometime soon? Should be out soon. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's at the press and they're being prepared right now. So in the next few months, it should it should be out. Wow, so it's going to be it's going to be a, a big book, I guess. You said a few hundred pages. Yeah, it's going to be about four hundred and seventy pages. <laughs> but what can you do? Yes, we, have to, we have access to a lot more documents than we used to because of online. <laughs> So it used to be before, it's always in some uh, documents in some far-flung library. Well, I couldn't get it. Now you get it in two seconds. You have no excuse. So, uh, right. And everything that, takes longer. Is that 450 pages with endnotes included, or you do footnotes? Yeah. As that was yeah. yeah, yeah, with everything. Yeah. Right. Um, so, and then you're planning on working on a biography after that. That would be your next project. Yeah, yeah. And that will be a shorter book. That will be a more popular, I mean, for, for maybe a broader audience. Right, right, right. Like, like, like the Jewish Live series, like that type of thing? Or yeah, maybe something more, maybe something more like that. I'm not, I'm not going to go into, I'm not going to write a five, I'm not going to do an Altman on, on her. Right. I'm not do a 900-page biography of Hirsch. So. Right, that's what I'm saying. So what, what's something for Hirsch, someone wants to read something, you know, same thing I asked you before about Mendelssohn, but something someone wants to get a basic overview of it. I know it's hard of his uh, philosophy, his Ashkaf, his overview. But what's something you would suggest that they look to start reading? Is it the Chumash? Oh, of Hirsch himself. Yeah, of Hirsch himself. His actual writings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, the best thing would be, right, to read Hirsch. But you have, we have a big problem with reading Hirsch. And the big problem is that... Um, the most of the English translations are inaccurate, quite inaccurate sometimes. And especially with the collected writings, uh. you have to be very, very careful. Some of them are okay, but sometimes the most interesting things he writes, you just don't find it there. So- Is that because of censorship? 
I don't know. Is it? I think sometimes it probably is. It's hard to say. Is it censorship or is it lack of care? I don't know. It's 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 hard. It's you know it's hard. It's hard to say. But you have to be very careful. You can't be sure when you're reading him that this is actually what he said, right? Um, you know, again, even the 19 letters, I have a whole list of the, the Elias edition of, of, of problems with the translation of mistakes, you know, where one time he says you have to study Judaism according to its teachings and it's geshik, which they translate as history. No, geshik means destiny. They mistook it for geshikta. There's many examples like this. So you have to be very careful. The Hebrew translations tend to be better of her. So if I was going to read something, I would read, there's three translations of the 19 letters. There's one by Heinemann. There's one by Aronson. Those are pretty good. Uh, there's a translation of Chorev. Uh, the English translation isn't bad. But yeah, I was going to ask you about that. But again, there's, I think also when a lot of these translations are done, they're done in a kind of free, even when they're, even when it's not an attempt to distort what he's saying, there's sometimes it's, uh, they're done very freely. And so if you really want to understand carefully what he's saying, you know, you'll sometimes have a problem, you know, and that's why I kind of, I want, I'm, I'm preparing also a, a new translation of the 19 letters with notes. Um, and, you know, it's what's amazing to me, again, as a scholar, is that there's not one academic edition of any of Hirsch's writings. How, how is, um, I want to jump in on that. How is Bernard Drachman's uh, translation of 19 letters? Not accurate. Not, no, no. It's, uh, again, very, very free. Very free, you know, so. Right. Yeah. Sorry, I cut you off. You were saying, there is, you're right, there is no academic edition of anything, right? Right. So, because Hirsch's, the, the 19 letters, is there's all these interesting contexts that completely get, for all the value that you have in looking at from a contemporary Haredi perspective, you miss a lot. So, for instance, I don't know that anyone has noticed that the 19 letters, they say, well, what's, the, what's it modeled on? Everyone say, well, Yehuda Levi or... Some people say the Rambam's Igeret Teman. Well, I think it's actually very much, and I think I could show it pretty clearly, that it's actually modeled on a work by the German philosopher Herder, which is called uh, On the Spirit of Hebrew Poetry, which is a dialogue about the necessity of returning to the Bible, studying it in the original language. And I can show all sorts of different, and we know Hirsch knew that work, and he quotes the work. Um, and so there's all this kind of broader context that often gets gets missed. And I think you lose something important when you don't see that. Wow, so that's fascinating. So is that something that you also want to publish one? The, the, the yeah, study? I've done about a third of it. And so I'm going to continue on with that with, with extensive notes. So. Is this an English translation? Yeah, English translation, yeah. Right. So I want to ask you, so the Chumash is really, what would you advise? There's four translations right now. You have the, 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 well, you have the Levy's uh, English translation, you have the New English translation, and then you have the two Hebrew ones now. The new one that Feldheim did, and then you have the Breuer one, the Evrit one. Is there any that, if someone was going to pick one that would be the best, besides the German, obviously? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. The Breuer's not bad, but again, there's things missing from it. I found places where there's things missing from it. And the English one, the New English one, as far as I can tell, uh, is that I think it was basically made primarily from the Hebrew translation. Yeah, I believe you're right. You know? And so, again, this is, you know, <laughs> it's okay, but it's not really, you're going to miss a lot when this happens. You know, and I found passages when I was looking at the English translation, I was making a point, and then, and, and, and I was come down to then going and comparing it with the German translation, saying, well, no, that's not there. <laughs> you know, so you really have to be very, very careful. You always have to look back to the, to the German if, if, if you can, but... Right. We can't always do it, so we have to do our best. Yeah. 
I don't know if you know the, the Breuer. They put out a new edition in uh, uh, 2016. It was a re- updated, newly typeset, and it was updated. Have you seen that? I don't know if I've seen that. No, I may only it, have the older. It wasn't officially sold here because the other one was sold here. You can kind of get it. I, I'm curious to compare. I should send you some pictures of it because I'm curious if it how it's yeah. different. Um. Okay. So, I believe more or less. That 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 covers uh, kind of what we wanted to get to. I don't know if anyone has any other questions. If you, I don't know if you want to answer any more, but uh, sure. that, that is basically. Somebody wants to know how, what about the translation of the commentary on Tehillim and Psalms. That's actually. You mean the translation? The, the translation, yeah. That's actually pretty good. The English comparing that and the English translation is actually pretty. That may be the best English translation of 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 of, of, of Hirsch. I was looking at to add it, and that was. Uh, that's a pretty accurate translation. So if you want to start somewhere, maybe that's a good place to start. Right. And that's Feldheim uh, also, right? I think that's the same, same yeah, uh, tradition. Yeah, yeah that's, that, that's I, I mean, I have it here. I think, I think it was a, a Breuer translator. I'm not sure, but, um, but that's, yeah, that one actually, I was, I, when I was noticing that it, it seems to be, a lot more accurate than a lot of the other translations. Right. And how about the Siddur? Have you seen the Siddur? Or... Yeah, Siddur, I haven't looked at carefully. Yeah, the translation compared it. So I'm not sure. Yeah. Right. It's curious. There's like, and then now they're doing this him and the Broyers. They're translating all on, on the, uh, all the, the holidays. They're translating all the stuff. I don't know if you've seen those volumes. No, I haven't seen them. I know there's Hebrew translations of those. And, um, yeah, I, I mean, well, oh, you mean of the hol- oh, specifically of the holidays, not not, not the calendar. Correct. They're doing it in English. Uh, uh, it's right. It's 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 well, it's it's him and his son-in-law and grandson. They're doing putting them together. There's like four or five volumes so far, I think. Oh, I haven't seen that yet. So. Yeah, they're they're interesting. So someone asked you, where would you send them to see the original Komish uh, and collected writings in German? Available you can get everything to... online. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, everything is available. That's why it's so easy today. You can get every every all of his texts are available online at archive.org or at I mean you don't have to you know travel to a library or and you just download and he has his Gazamul Tashriftim, you know, six volumes of his collected writings, which actually isn't complete. There's not some very interesting works of his that are not in the Gazamul Tashriftim, but the Gazamul Tashriftim, yeah, you can you can just download those online for free. And so if you want to look at them in German, yeah, it's very easy. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, very good. Thank you. Thank you for uh, for coming on tonight. And I guess we'll keep an eye out on your on your new book. Like you said, it should be out uh, sometime soon in the near future. And then we'll look forward to your biography for sure. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you very much. It was fun. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Thank you.